Coming up next, once more into the breach as we read and discuss Midsummer's Night's. I always do. I always want to say Midsummer's Night's Dream or Midsummer's Night, night dream. dream, but never the right way. I never want to say a Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. I'm joined here by my two best friends in the whole wide world. The first best friend, not first in my affections, but just the first of the two, but equal in esteem, would be Brandon Chastine, the scholar who's a baller reading. Hi, Nathan. Hey, Brandon, what's your favorite song? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't have a favorite song. Is it Happy Birthday? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's a good song. That's a great song. No longer under copyright, so we could sing it today if we wanted to. It's anybody's birthday. I'm sure it's someone's birthday. <laughs> coming uh, coming in second still in affection. Wait, what? <laughs> Are you looking up whose birthday it is? Yeah. Okay, let's find out. I can wait. Jake's going to look up whose birthday it is. It's got to be somebody's. And then we have to sing this person happy birthday, whoever it is. Birthday, what is today? today? But not for the listener. What's that? Not for the listener, it's not. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, Would we'll... like some on this day in history? Are you looking up when this episode drops? No, I'm looking up the day we're recording it. For, we need to do this for the listener's benefit, I think, and know what the biggest well, celebrity... Well, this would be neat for the listener's benefit because then they'd have a puzzle to solve. Oh. What day did we actually record? Yeah, they can go back and find this out. Yeah. So find the most obscure. Yeah, find some... Find some author. What would that be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find someone that ties into the booking, and we will sing that person happy birthday. Okay, you're just going to have to pick like a century. I got this long list of famous people. Well, is anybody literary jumping out at you? It's a really long list. Alexander Dumas. There we go. <laughs> okay, I guess that. Alexander Dumas. Should we sing happy birthday to Alexander Dumas? Sing, sing, is old, it, sing happy birthday, old dumbass. I could probably find somebody better. <laughs> yeah, oh, he's, he's our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest writer of all time. Is it Pear or uh, is it young Dumas or old Dumas? They probably don't have the same birthday. Probably don't. Yeah. <laughs> It was stupid. You idiot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I admit that was a dumb Sometimes thing. Sometimes I wonder why you even open your mouth, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. We can wait for Jake. I'll just talk to Brandon I'm while sure Jake. The, reader, uh, the listeners How do you are finding say, this exciting. Uh, Carducci's first name. <laughs> How do you know who Carducci is? Because Car- he's this like Nobel Prize laureate poet. Oh. Oh, the great Carducci. <laughs> you guys know. I don't know. <laughs> it is what it sounds like. <laughs> the great Carducci. The great Carducci. <laughs> Presenting <laughs> the great Carducci. <laughs> One uh, fish, red, blue fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know. That looks like he's an Iranian. I think he's a song guy, a music, what are they you guys called? Musicians. A troubadour. A troubadour. <laughs> <laughs> you found, you gotta find us a good birthday so this segment can end, Jake. <laughs> Sorry, man. Looks like it's Dumas. It's Dumas? All right. Bum, 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 bum. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Happy birthday to you. Jake, you have to sing happy birthday to Alexander Dumas. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I need, to, I need to know which one I'm singing to. Oh, is it just really desperate not to sing to Dumas? <laughs> yeah, I'll, okay. Wait, yeah. This is the Three Musketeers. Okay, we, we can feel better about singing birthday to that guy than the other guy. He wrote, like, what, some weird romance stuff or something? Pretty racy stuff, I think. So that's better. All right, here we go. Bum, 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 bum. Happy <laughs> Jake's not. I did too sing. I was singing. He just couldn't. Oh, he's, he was ring. Okay, I, I guess wait, I got. Wait. wait, did you find somebody better? No, I was wrong. This is the sun. Oh, we can't. shoot. This no. is this is the one that uh, whose play appears in my Antonia. Oh, okay. We'll do it for my Antonia. We'll do it for Kath for uh, Jim's sake. Old Jim Jim Bundren. Jim. Bum 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 bum. <laughs> Bundren. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Jim Bundren. What did I say? It was Burden, wasn't it? Oh, Burden. Whatever. Bundren is from. Gilead, right? Oh, oh yeah. gross. You're right. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, boy. <laughs> Excuse me while I go and throw myself off a bridge. <laughs> All right. You really did that. <clears throat> so, in honor of Willa Cather, we will now sing Happy Birthday to Alexander Dumas, the Younger. Bum, bum, bum. Jake, would you like to do the bum, 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 bums? No, no I wouldn't. I'll take that as a no. Bum, 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 bum. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. What? Happy birthday, dear Alexander Dumas the Younger. Happy birthday to That's done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now we can continue with the booketing. Yes. Oh, guys, wait. We have to do donor shout outs. You ready to shout out our donors, Brandon? You better believe it. Shout them out to John. John. Shout them out to Beth. Beth. Shout them out to Eric and Catherine. Eric and Catherine. <laughs> Brendan actually just hit puberty as, <laughs> as he was shouting that. So the booketing's done. Um, uh, Mr. X in there. Oh, yes. And a secretive whisper for Mr. X. Mr. X. <laughs> he has to remain anonymous, and anonymous he or she shall remain. But he or she is giving us money, and he is in the donor he and or she is in the donor. Uh, if you'd like to hear Brandon shout your name, yeah, just give <laughs> please money. visit patreon.com forward slash the booking and give, was it $10? You got to give more? at least $10? $10 or more. If you want to be anonymous and have Brandon do kind of a secretive whisper, like it's just between you and Brandon. You know what you I have think to we do? Can, we could safely say that we'll have Brandon shout out it, pretty much anything you want to during our shout out section. Oh, yeah. If you give just, $10 or more. Yeah, keep it clean, folks. But <laughs> <laughs> if you want to give your name as nugget mcburger face or something like that <laughs> nugget mcburger face. basically <laughs> just because you brandon want brandon will say whatever you want him to if yeah. you give yeah he'll be a dollar <laughs> yep that is what i do <laughs> i think we should do baggage check or no that's not how baggage check starts it starts with an airplane going over guys i for 50 episodes in i can't i can't do my own shtick anymore jake how's it going it's going. Ah, airplane! <laughs> hey, 
indicating baggage check, the part of the show where Jay blah 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 blah. We're now we're gonna do our baggage. Um, so this is where we talk about our baggage. We talk about what baggage we brought to this thing. Jake, what baggage did you bring to Midsummer Night's Dream? Love Shakespeare, as we all know. If anybody has followed the show for any length of time, you know that I love Shakespeare, and he was pretty formative for me in turning me on to really love literature. But when I think of Shakespeare and what I love about Shakespeare, I don't think of the comedies. If you're going to name your top Shakespeare play, could you do you have one that pops No, I couldn't. Head? I would probably just default to like Hamlet or something like that. Not a shabby choice? Not a bad choice at all, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and if anybody else who rates Shakespeare plays says so, <laughs> that it's, Hamlet is usually at the top. People like Hamlet. I've noticed that about people. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but Shakespeare really was. Again, we're, we got a lot of new listeners these days because the bookening is wildly successful. So people might like to know the three sentence version of your story. Shakespeare really was like the first real, like just sunlight pouring in through the windows into your brain, and suddenly you knew literature and all of that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I think that you know, I was a freshman in high school, and I had one of those high school literature teachers that up until then I had pretty much avoided reading anything that was ever assigned to me. <laughs> but I had one of those teachers who was ruthless in her quizzes. And, you know, I remember, my, I think the first book that we might have read would have been Great Expectations or something like that. I don't know. Because I remember being really angry about some of the dumb questions on the on the daily quiz, like what was the color of Pip's bag or something like that. And you just read 100 pages of something. You're supposed to remember what the color of Pip's bag was on page 182 or something. I don't know. And so, um, so I had to read. Uh, if I didn't want to fail that class. And so I read, and I read Shakespeare, and I just loved him. And I loved him because because I felt known and understood in a way uh, better than I knew myself. And I hadn't really experienced that feeling before. Someone through the ages gets me, this Shakespeare guy. Gets me and gets me better than I get myself, and that's really cool. Like, I have, I need to go to school and learn human nature from this guy learn myself from this guy, read myself in his pages and figure out, you know, you're 15 years old or whatever and you know, figure out who I am and realize that that kind of thing's out there. So Shakespeare was a big deal to me for that reason. And I would say there's a way in which you could um, say that put me down the trajectory of becoming a, a Christian, wanting to be known. And guess what? God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's wrote a book too. He's wrote, he's written a book too. That's better than Shakespeare. Right. So, so that's sort of um, where I, how I come to Shakespeare as somebody I, you know, it's just stupid to say things like as somebody I have tremendous respect for. Or whatever, right? <laughs> like, what but, but I, you know, he has a special place in, in, uh, in my heart. Well, for a lot of people, it's like Holden Caulfield or something like that that they discovered when they were 15. But yours was Shakespeare because you're that much cooler than all those yeah. <laughs> or, or dorky or, yeah, or, like or yeah or that much more of a raging nerd but uh. <laughs> but anyhow yeah so Shakespeare uh, uh, he meant a lot to me I love Shakespeare I think you know I, I think I read every play in like whatever the reader was that we had at the time um, I don't you know, it's been so long I don't know if I had read a Midsummer Night's Dream I assume that I had and just didn't quite remember uh, the comedies would have washed off my back uh, at the at that time. I didn't care as much about them because it wasn't like the insightful, you know. And in you know maybe some of the humor would have been over my head too. Mm-hmm. So so I came expecting greatness, 
and ready to accept whatever this was as great, whether it was or wasn't, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and assume that if I didn't find it to be great, that the problem was with me. Um, it's yeah. nice to be able to do that, I think. It's nice to be able to just defer every once in a while to the authority of <laughs> the ages. Some, and of a the, couple of people that we can, yeah. we, we can come to that way. And uh, he's one of them. It, maybe very few of them, but Shakespeare certainly. Yeah, one of them. there's one person that we can just say he probably knew what he was doing. It's <laughs> William Shakespeare. I just, I, there's the Bible, right? <laughs> there's Calvin. Mm-hmm. There's Shakespeare, and there's Jane Austen. And, yep. <laughs> and Agatha outside Christie. of those people, and, and Agatha, Agatha Christie, Christie, obviously <laughs> the great. Uh, those are, I mean, honestly, if you're gonna like try to find ten, five or ten people that you're just gonna assume that. If you don't get it, it's because you're stupid. The problem's with you? Yeah. Calvin, That's Austin, a good list. Shakespeare, and obviously the Bible would be number one. Uh, yeah. Augustine. I can't even think of another. Tolstoy. Yeah, but Tolstoy was really weird religiously. Like, well, he was weird. Yeah. I mean, you can't, just, you can't just eat everything that Tolstoy gives you and assume it's nutritious. It's a rich feast, but it's not quite the same as Shakespeare, Brandon. Well, it's not the same as Shakespeare. It's no. not the same as It's not the same as Shakespeare. <laughs> Not the Seamus. No, neither is not Seamus Heaney either. <laughs> Boy. So as far as comedies go, the one that stands out in my mind that I read was The Taming of the Shrew, and I remember thinking that was funny. Mm-hmm. It's got those, you know, isn't, that's the one that has the great, you know, uh, me thinks the lady death protests too much. And Taming of the Shrew it. has a good, easy to remember plot hook. It's about the taming of a shrew. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> some of the other plays that's are. probably <laughs> what, what that's uh, why it's stuck. So there's a shrew. She gets tamed. But this play is, yeah. Did you? So did you? In fact, remember it as you went through it, or did you think, suspect no, that perhaps you hadn't read it before? I suspected that I hadn't read it. Uh, Brandon, what baggage did you bring to this fine play? Well, I don't like Shakespeare at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, I think this play is the one that I've read the most. Of all the plays, really? except for maybe, maybe Julius Caesar. Oh, that's interesting. It's just this is often assigned in classes. So you, it's not because you are just like. And also, I like this. I like this play. It's, uh, it, but it's been a long time since I've read it, and I forgot how much of a fever dream this play is. It's really it's weird. A, it's a very weird play. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing a lot of fun. Well, I guess we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, my baggage. Yeah, is that that basically is my baggage. <laughs> I've read it a lot. I love Shakespeare. What's your favorite Shakespeare? Gun to your head. My favorite Shakespeare? Pretty name drop The Tempest a lot. I I think it would be The Tempest. I like his comedies. So I came at it from a different angle. I actually probably liked his comedies the most. And it's taken me the longest to actually come to terms and like Hamlet and Macbeth. That's interesting. But I like them now. And I think that's probably the opposite of most people if I just had to. Well, I guess it kind of makes sense if you realize that I was reading Dickens. And so the the comedies are more along the Dickens flavor than. Boisterous, colorful. Yeah. And they are boisterous and colorful. I mean, I think Hamlet, now, if you were to put a gun to my head, what would I say is his greatest play? It would be Hamlet. I think. What's his greatest character study, Hamlet, easy, yeah. the character of Hamlet? Uh, but I still like The Tempest. I mean, I mean with Jake here, I, every time I come to read Shakespeare, even, so one summer, I, what I did is I read his um, history plays. They were all fantastic. And so you just can't go wrong reading him. I really want to watch that. Has anybody watched that thing no, that the BBC did with, the, what was that called? The... The Royal the, Crown or the the Hollow, Hollow Crown? Hollow series. Crown, yeah. I, That's right. Every time I go to the library, I look, and it's always checked out. 
That's a star-studded thingamabobber, if ever there was one. Huh. Didn't they drop a second? Yeah, they've done all the way through... What's the cycle? What's the actual cycle? They've done all the... I think the Henrys and through Richard Richard. III. No, no, no. They've done cycle one and cycle two. So it's over. Yeah, they've done... Richard II, Henry IV, Part One and Part Two, Henry V, Henry VI, Part One, Part Two, and Part Three, and Richard III. Richard III. Oh. And Hunchback. Cycle One stars Ben Whishaw, Jeremy Irons, and Tom Hiddleston. Cycle Two, Benedict Cumberbatch, Judy Dench, Sophia Okonedo, Michael Gambon, and Angus Emery. Michael Gambon. Does he play Richard III? It doesn't say right here. I don't know. He'd be a good Richard III. Yeah. It's supposed to be fantastic. Yeah, and I'm sure it is. Yeah. Every clip I've seen from it looks really great. The great cast. Yeah. We'll have to watch some of those. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do a history next year so we have an excuse to just we watch. Do the Henrys and have to also watch the <laughs> Kenneth Branagh films. Are you an anti-Kenneth Branagh? No, I like those films. You said that with something like a sneer. Oh, he makes me laugh sometimes, that's all. Yeah. he's Kenneth Branagh might be one of the lesser parts of many Kenneth Branagh productions actually himself but there's another hot take uh I guess I should ask myself Nathan what baggage did you bring to this uh I like Shakespeare a lot I fall squarely into the modernist loser camp of people that really have an easy time with the melancholy Dane and all the blood and guts kind of plays but have a much more difficult time with the comedies I've read fewer of the comedies. I had not read this play before. This was my first time. I also have a very limited appreciation for farce, I guess. Like, I'm not hugely amused by people running around on stage in and out of... With a donkey's head. With a donkey's head. (laughs) Um, I remember one of the funniest things I ever saw in my entire life was when I was very young, an episode of Gilligan's Island... They're planning a birthday party for Mr. Howell, and Mr. Howell somehow gets it in his head that they're planning to murder him. Sounds funny. And, yeah, it was hilarious. You know? um, <laughs> and then they do. And then they do. <laughs> the grave digger has an amazing speech. No, uh, Mr. Howell, Mr. Howell thinks they're trying to murder him, but they, they are, of course, trying to plan a surprise party. So there's all these silly mix-ups, threes company style kind of things where they're acting sketchy because they want to hide the party but mr howell thinks and then it culminates in a scene where mr howell sneaks up on the group and they've captured a pig and they need to kill it so that they can have a great feast and mr howell doesn't realize they've captured a pig so he sneaks up on gilligan and the skipper and they're arguing about who's gonna kill the pig and he doesn't know with the context so the skipper's like somebody's gotta kill that old boar and then mr howell is horrified and thinks that they're talking about killing him, and I remember that line in particular slayed me as a as a six year old or whatever. <laughs> I was like in the top ten moments in Nathan's life where he's laughed. That's probably one of them. Like somebody's got to kill that old boar. Is uh, but that was the last time I ever liked farce of that type of the misunderstanding kind of. I don't know. I mean, I, I realize it's completely unfair to lump a Midsummer's Night's Dream in with something like Three's Company, but that is always what I think of. Is the Jack and Christie got to trick the landlord into thinking that the it's a French chef kind of that hackneyed sitcom kind of thing is what's always in the back of my head. Obviously, Shakespeare is a genius, but it's never been my favorite form. Just like Nick Bottom thinks he's an ass or doesn't know he's an ass and he keeps 
saying things that are humorously assy unaware yeah <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry this is not gonna be another agatha christie where i spend the time whining about how this is not my thing but yeah i actually really enjoyed this play a lot and enjoyed the couple uh movie versions of it i watched to some degree or another but i will just say that whole thing that that type of humor of like crazy misunderstandings piling up on each other it's kind of classic Stuff that I think like Tartuffe or classic French. I don't know what it is. It'd be like classic French farce kind of what what Three's Company is basically doing. That that kind of thing has never really appealed to me, except for that one Gilligan's Island episode, which was one of the great masterpieces of the comic art form, obviously. Yeah. Got those phallic parades that Aristotle was liked. You've got Midsummer's Night's Dream and you've got uh, Gilligan's Island, the birthday surprise for Mr. Howell episode. Yeah. Shakespeare. I love him. The end. Do you guys like farce stuff? Big Three's Company fan, Jake? I really watch Three's Company. Are you a big fan of that? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, like the kind of... Yeah, like Gilligan's Island. Or, or, or like Shakespeare. Are you a big fan of Shakespeare plays where somebody people are putting on disguises and sneaking around and like complications are piling up kind of... Frasier used to do stuff like that yeah. a little bit more elegantly than Three's Company or Gilligan's Island. It's just never really been... It's a comedy of errors. A comedy of errors. You keep having the misunderstandings are what's funny because you also know that there will be some sort of resolution. Right. Except... Not always with things like, uh, what'd you say? Frasier. Frasier, yeah. yeah. Sometimes Frasier and Niles were still on the outs with each other by the end of those episodes. Yeah. Or Seinfeld. Or Seinfeld, yeah. <laughs> you like, you like com- comedies of errors, Brandon? Yeah, when it's done well, it makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I like to laugh. Yeah. I-, I love to laugh. <laughs> but Wild and... Long and free. <laughs> Long and loud and clear. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> it's getting worse every year. I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful baggage or not, but I did come to this play somewhat being like, I don't know, Shakespeare, I know you're a genius. I know if I don't like this, the problem's with me, but I'm not completely prepared for whether I'm going to like this or not because it's a one of those complicated threes company type things, and I don't know, Shakespeare, but... It was good. I liked yeah. it a lot. So Well, because it's not just all about the farce. The farce is part of it. And the farce is, as far as far farce, farce goes, is fun. It's fun, and Bottom's a really funny character, yeah. actually. And, and It's not about just making you laugh the whole time. It's also just about the joy of the situation and watching it unfold. That was actually one of the really interesting things. I watched a... Um, all right, we're moving out of context now. I watched a... Uh, ta-da! End of context. I watched a version of this, a live... Not a, I didn't see a... I watched a recorded version of a live stage play so you could hear the audience and you could hear where they laughed. And they laughed a lot, but for something that's basically billed as a comedy, I mean, they didn't laugh all that much. They thought Puck was funny. They thought Bottom was funny. And they thought the lovers were funny, I guess, once they started like getting their clothes ripped off, which is a reoccurring theme in adaptations, as I found out. (laughs) But uh, the audience seemed to enjoy that. I watched clips from uh, one of the stage plays at the Globe. A lot of the comedy was in the physical was physical. Yeah. But it, it was pretty, the clips that I watched were pretty funny and I, I would have, I think I would have enjoyed being there for it. That's what I remember thinking when I watched it was, it would have been a really fun night at the theater for something like that. But maybe not as fun to sit at home and watch other people. I don't know. There's a, there's an interplay with the. With actually the, being there. Yeah. With yeah. the audience. Yeah. And there's like the interaction, they're inter- sort of interacting with the, you know, these moments where, you know, uh, Oberon and Puck are, you know, they, 
freeze and pretend to be trees or whatever. Yeah. But then they creep closer so they can hear and they're playing with the audience and hand a stick to somebody in the crowd when they're done pretending to be trees and you know, yeah. little things like that that are I don't know. Fun I think to that see. kind of living play where you're actually playing off of the crowd is is neat. Yeah, I always I like to be a part of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Growing up my parents would sometimes take us to Shakespeare in the parks sort of situations. You ever been to those? I'm sure it was awesome, right? Oh, they were fun. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. It's, they would, um, sometimes break out of the actual play to just kind of like do a little nudge to the audience. And there's that interaction that made it fun or bring the play actually out into the audience and stuff Mm -hmm. like that when you're having chases and trying to remember which one we saw. I saw a modern version of The Taming of the Shrew, and we actually ended up leaving. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's pretty tough finding versions of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream that's not full of uh, nudity. N- yeah. yeah. Don't that was, watch. That was the problem with it. Somehow they worked that into Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, so I watched the trailer <laughs> for a couple of them, and there's a trailer for a one featuring Judy Dench, and in the trailer for that one, Judy Dench is topless. And so I... Yay. I thought, oh, I'll watch this other Kevin Klein one. <laughs> no, this well, was presumably filmed years ago, right? Like this wasn't like <laughs> yes, yes. A recent. It was a young Judy Dench. I didn't know it was Judy Dench until it was like Judy Dench. It said on the screen. <laughs> it was 2017. Topless Judy Dench. Uh, the horror. The horror. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very young Judy Dench. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I tried to watch one with a young Helen Mirren, as a ma- as a as a matter of fact, a very young uh, babe version of Helen Mirren. I, th- I forget who she played, but yeah, that, I had to turn that version off for the exact same reason. So uh, you got to be careful with your Midsummer's Night's Dreams, I guess. I, I don't. Is there a? I guess you could watch like the 1935 version. And I've not actually seen the 1935 version, but it's supposed to be quite good. I've seen clips from it. I love Jimmy Cagney, who plays a bottom. He's a great gangster actor. He played uh, a lot of great gangsters in the 1930s. He plays bottom? Yeah, he plays That's bottom. Fun. Yeah, so the guy in the version, the version I watched was also, they played bottom as a street tough kind of a, he had kind of a Brooklyn accent sort of thing. So it was one of those <laughs> modern. Hey, she here. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much um which worked i mean he was just like a classic blowhard street guy which made sense i guess i guess that is a, a worthwhile question to ask for baggage what versions of this have you guys seen jake you just seen the kevin klein the kevin klein version yeah, would you recommend the kevin klein version it's a whole lot of whole lot of nudity mm. and they did some things that i thought were weird i would probably not recommend a it, there is a lot of that kind of stuff and b they did so you know they made Kevin Klein is bottom and he's super charming and doesn't, you know, the, the, it's a very different treatment of yeah, this whole subplot about how bottom's wife is like, hates him hates and, him and he's a, he's a, a dreamer who, you know, oh, yeah, forget that. He, he does a really charming job as bottom, but it's a very different bottom. I mean, he's good at the comedy. Like, yeah. I mean, he knows how to get laughs out of things. Like I'll have Peter Quince write a thing and it will be called, bottoms thing you know i mean he just knows how to time that sort of thing so that it's funny but uh, yeah i I mean he's shown he was the star of the show right Um, who played the other characters titania was michelle pfeiffer oh i remember this version i've never seen it yeah it's it's kind of weird stanley tucci i think was puck Puck. yeah he did all right christian bale was uh uh, not lissander but uh 
Oh yeah, Christian Bale was uh, what's the other guy? The other the one of the bros in the woods there. Demetrius. Was, Demetrius. Demetrius yeah, yeah, he was Demetrius. Just, Close to Flockhart's Helena. Yeah, and I didn't like her take on it at all. She just plays Helena as completely crazy, like clingy. Come back, Lysander, whatever one she's interested in. What you looking for, Brandon? It looks like you're looking for something. No, I'm just trying to think how we're going to talk about this play. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the first question I wanted to ask you guys is, why did we decide to do this play? <laughs> I don't know how to talk about it at all. <laughs> we were all like, oh, this is a heavy year. We're going to have labyrinths. and We felt, the, we felt that we'd made a mistake and... last year because we did Macbeth in the middle of summer when it felt too we heavy. We did Beowulf, and then we did Macbeth. <laughs> right, which is bad. And then we did Dracula. Which is, <laughs> yeah, kind of a heavy... So this was supposed to be a palate cleanser. This is kind of a palate cleanser after what did we just do? After Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> so we're, that was, it's it was all changed. It was Labyrinths. That's right. Yeah. yeah it's so supposed to have been Labyrinths our on Twitter followers side, and Something Wicked This Way Comes on the other side, and Something Wicked still does come. After <laughs> it's like what I did there. Yeah, that was very, that was very nice. I, I applaud that. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. What do you guys want to talk about this? Too bad I don't have a question. Tron two thousand or something. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the play and I laughed. And yes. did you laugh while you were reading it? I read it in one sitting late at night, and I did not laugh as much as I did when I watched the Kevin Klein version that I don't recommend or. I really liked, I wish that I would have watched some of the uh, uh, the stage plays or whatever, because I liked some of the clips that I saw. It was pretty funny. Yeah, I think, I'm trying to think whether I can recommend the one that I watched. It looks really edgy. Yeah, it, the trailer picked out all the edgy parts and put them all together. I mean, yeah, I can't trust myself. I'm too desensitized to that kind of stuff. I just won't recommend it. But it was pretty. it was pretty good, I think. I don't know. I, I wish you guys would have had time to watch it because. Mm. Well, what I liked it the the highlight of the Kevin Klein version was the play within the play. Yeah, that was really great, really well done, and highlighted uh, how how smart Shakespeare is as a writer. But again, I love, and I think we talked about this with Macbeth because we, we we watched a couple different versions of Macbeth. We watched Patrick Stewart, and we watched oh that dumb Michael Fassbender version, the, fa- yeah. the, the Fassbender version. Right. I really love how much play there is in within a Shakespeare play. Right. Um, it, I, I think I've seen, I've probably talked about this before too, but Tom Hiddleston giving an interview about the hollow crown and talking about all the different ways that you can convincing, convincingly give the line once more, or the once more to the breach, dear right. friend's speech. And it works 5,000 different ways. Once more to the breach or once more to the breach, dear friend, you know, mm. all, and everything in between. And so I just love... I love that this is something that we weren't meant to read, but we were meant to see performed and interpreted for us. I love seeing the different interpretations. Some things are funny or not funny, serious or not serious based on an interpretation. So Yeah, actually, and it can really change the way you can think You think about these things. The example I have from this go around was the character of, I get them confused, Hermia is kind of the main girl that the two guys are interested and in. And Helena is right? the desperate. The desperate one. Yeah. So in the Kevin Klein version, Callista Flockhart plays the desperate one. Right. And she plays her really crazy. And then the other girl is played more or less 
straight Mm. until the end when they're like beating each other up in a mud pit or something like that. So it escalates into everybody being screechy and crazy. But basically, your sympathies are supposed to be with the young lovers that can't be that are in this weird Romeo and Juliet kind of a situation. In the other version that I watched, the young lovers were really dopey and self-important and kind of playing it funny from the beginning. And it actually made the whole play make a lot more sense to me that way because, because it read as a as a mockery of young stupid people yeah, just of young stupid love when the guy says like the course of true love never did run smooth they were both <laughs> being imagined somebody you know living who lives in their mom's basement or something like that yeah yeah exactly <laughs> sort of line yeah. yeah 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 i mean it was just like <laughs> these two completely self involved self-important young, <laughs> like every young lover yep. is i mean it's not it's not hateful towards the idea of young love i think but it's just like you know they don't, they don't have any clue what they're doing and really you could probably swap these couples around and five more times and as long as there's a guy for each girl what is it they're pretty interchangeable um that's what this other version you know they were all sort of equally crazy and if anything your sympathies were a little bit more with puck (laughs) yeah yeah really (laughs) i don't know do we what did you guys think is this play meant to teach you anything about the nature of love or fate or dreams or what is the point of a is this just a fun evening's entertainment what is what is the immortal bard of stratford upon avon trying to accomplish here so i guess it all comes down to puck's apology right at the end Mm -hmm. you're the one that got me thinking about that in the first place but um i definitely paid attention to it more or he just tongue in cheek basically says this might all just be a dream too, right? Yeah, and nothing, it, nothing to see here. So I, I mean, I feel like the right answer to that question is it's just supposed to be a super fun, whatever, whimsical, enjoyable night out. That also maybe makes you question what's up, what's up and what's down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That was an enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and maybe that's supposed to be part of the pleasure is that you come away and you've lived in a dream for two hours, you know, and, or however long it takes to perform. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of cleverness going on. So him playing around with the form is definitely here at the end where you've had the play within the play. You've had Oberon and Titania where, you know, are you really supposed to think this is happening or are you actually seeing their dream as their terrified about whatever's going to happen the next morning because they've all ran away and they know that they're being and she could be killed by her father and so it's bookended by these two things that we know are actually happening Mm -hmm. you have the dream that possibly happened and then puck comes on stage at the very end and tells us this might all have been a dream yeah it is fun and the point he's making is fun i mean it you take a step back you're like yeah all art is kind of a dream and that's Mm -hmm. but the is he teaching us something that's your question well I realize it's a dumb question because is he teaching like, us something in Hamlet? I don't think he's teaching Hamlet? us. No, I don't think he's, he's teaching us something like he teaches us in Hamlet, right? But he is teaching us about the value of the com the comedic form, which is not going to be as deep as, and none of his comedies are as deep as his, like as deep. And I'm doing air quotes here, right? Well, like if you read the Taming of the Shrew, it's not that any of his plays are intended to be purely didactic. Of course, that's not worth what we're saying. But if you read the Taming of the Shrew or the Tempest, there's or uh, the Merchant of Venice, there's a lot of insight and things that you can glean about human nature and about how the world works and how romance <laughs> works. This, to me, I'm not sure has any of that. It's just unless a- unless you, it's interpreted the way that you 
the in the version that you saw where you have all these self-important lovers who think they're going to make their own destiny and do their own thing and they're actually guided by unseen forces and it ends up you know the way it ends up despite them right you know and if that's the lesson that uh, all you self-important lovers out there who think that you're going to control your fate and your destiny um, you're pretty dumb. Well, one point of interest about that that I don't think Brandon mentions, Shakespeare would have written this, I believe, right around the time that he wrote Romeo and Juliet. This is right. And he includes a total mockery of that kind of, a, that exact kind of a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Down to the suicide. I mean, it's a total yeah, Romeo and Juliet kind you of. You gotta love him for that. Yeah. <laughs> he seems to have some some self-awareness there or something. I don't know. Well, no less than our, our, our good buddy on the booking, old Gilbert Keith Chesterton, said this was his, the greatest, uh, are you crying? No, sorry, I just got something in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I looked over at Brandon. <laughs> It's just like You're talk about Chesterton. <laughs> it's like a tear. No, yeah, someone's in it. Uh, I can't I'm get sorry. it. Out. It's all fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> it would have been quite the moment if I you'd really been what you looked like when I looked over. <laughs> what did I say? Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> no less than G.K. Chesterton said this was the best Shakespeare play. He said that Hamlet was perhaps or Macbeth was the perhaps the best character study of Shakespeare, but he said just as a work of art, this was the best Shakespeare play. And he said if the ending were acted properly, any modern man would feel shaken to his marrow if he had to walk home from the theater through a country lane. So, Why? what's that? Why? What does he mean by that? Because <laughs> <laughs> this might as all be a dream as you're walking. Down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, if you yeah. you can find this essay online by just put in I don't remember what the essay is called, but just put in Chesterton Midnight Summer's Night Dream. He talks about how he says this play captures the feeling of a dream. He says, just as an artistic capturing of a mood, this is one of the great works of art, much better than Hamlet or anything like that in terms of just simply capturing a feeling or a mood. This play captures what a dream is like. Almost, It's almost singular in the way that it does that per Chesterton because what it's doing is you stay the same. You, you, you are the constant and everything else around you is getting swapped. People are getting changed out. That's interesting. Allegiances are getting changed out. Things are confusing and disorienting and crazy and you're running through the dark and maybe you're a horse but the thing is you're still the same you know you're the audience watching right so he said just in terms of capturing that feeling and then and then chesterton yeah he says and then the fairies come back at the end and they wink at the idea that you actually should be kind of shaken but you should feel that like i remember when the matrix came out there were people saying I saw the Matrix, and you know, are, am I real? Is this real? <laughs> Read a book, see some more sci-fi movies, something. Don't be so impressed by the Matrix. Eleven-year-old Michael Crumb. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Matrix actually isn't a bad example for my generation of something that made people suddenly think, "Oh, am I?" You know, one of those mind-blowing kind of things. That's the feeling. It makes you think double think about your reality yeah what if this is all a dream what if someone's about to what if the guy that's dreaming about the booking is about to wake up and jake and brandon yeah, and so, will never exist but i think the statement here is more about art than it is about our reality right i don't think shakespeare's saying that our world is a dream or is he i don't know man you want to go up what's against he, what's he saying man jake <laughs> jake knocks to aristotle from his perch you want to take on chesterton now yeah. well i mean 
If I can get this thing out of my eye, maybe I'll be able to say something. You want to take a break and go wash it or something? No, it's good. Um, So the people who are watching the play at the end, you have Theseus and you have Hippolyta. They're kind of the steady characters. They're stand-ins for the audience, right? They're kind of stand-ins for us. Especially when they have their little debate about how, where he's just like, there are three kinds of irrational person. And and then she's like, well, it's kind of weird that they would all have the same crazy dream, though. Well, I mean, obviously one of the big themes of this is just the complete inability of men and women to understand one another. But yet they're... for various reasons, thrown into having to understand one another. <laughs> ask, your, ask your parents, kids. <laughs> um, Are you talking about the special hugs that people give each other? Yes, the special hugs. That result in the stork bringing a baby? Yes. Nathan. <laughs> I can tell you about it later. Okay. Maybe off mic, we can yeah. you know, explain more about this. I've always been curious about it. But I mean, if you think about it, every character, I guess, except maybe Aegeus, but then he has the relationship with his daughter, it's always this conflict between male and female. So even Oberon and Titania, um, that's at root there, the debate they're having, because they haven't spoken to one another in a long time. And so Oberon is trying to figure out how to get one over on her (laughs) by making her fall in love with the animal. And that is where a lot of the farce comes from, and comedy is this um, relationship, which is, I guess, is why a lot of the great comedies nowadays are all about relationships, too. (laughs) So just something about the great farce of... A man even trying to woo a woman in the first place, <laughs> or a man and a woman trying to live together. But I think and that, that is kind of what Chesterton. Chesterton talks a lot about that. Right. Right. He says How, the um, marriage is a lover's quarrel. Yes, yeah, just completely incompatible. Right. right. But we live, we live together. I think it's much easier to say that, for example, the Taming of the Shrew or a number of other Shakespeare plays are about that, about how our innate nature as men and women makes things difficult for us and makes it humorously difficult for an audience. But uh, this play just seems like life is difficult when there are fairies giving you love potions. I mean, does anything really arise out of the innate nature of man? Demetrius and his gal that he ends up with. Yeah. Right. She wants him, but he doesn't want her. He wants the other girl. And the problem is solved not because of any insight into character, but because the fairies decide to leave him potioned up and depotion the other person. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, there is a different resolution. Like you're, you don't really see that in the Tempest either. They're already they already like each other. The issue there is with Caliban and the whole struggle that happens with that, and Ariel gets involved, and so. But wouldn't Chesterton's point be? Yeah, that's the genius of it. It's not all in you. There are some things that aren't explainable by great insight into human nature, but these queer outside supernatural forces that are working on us, and you can call them fairies or whatever you want to. It's not all perfectly explicable. I don't know. I'm not... I don't know whether that's Chesterton's point. I think that's, I think that's a good is point. That not, uh, that's the way that I understood Chesterton's point. I don't know if that's... Yeah, the resolution... Get, I mean, I don't know how what else to take out but things like that you know yeah i mean the resolution is very different than the other comedies that's fair enough but i don't think it changes the fact that it's still at root is about that tension that's what makes comedy fun right is that just obvious tension between maleness and Mm -hmm. femaleness men yeah i mean which is why 
our new transgendered, neutered culture can't ever have real comedy and never have real fun. Well, here's that's an interesting point about this particular play because all the versions that I've watched and all the YouTube clips of other versions that I've watched, excluding some of the really old ones like the Jimmy Cagney one, but everybody tends to view this play as a very androgynous kind of... It's uh, a very gender-bendy kind gender of... Gender-fluid, yeah, play. The fairies are and the sprites are a perfect excuse to be all gender bendy. Yeah, right. people like to make a fact about the fact make a fact about the fact. They like to make a, make fact a lot about, about the fact that Puck never has a gender assigned. Does somebody not at least use a male pronoun in reference? I don't know. To him? Maybe not. But his name is Robin, not Robert. Well, and you've also got Titania and Oberon apparently living in some kind of weird hippie open kind of relationship because they've both right. had lovers and they and o- Oberon doesn't mind playing a joke and tricking his wife into basically whatever spending a night with an ass spending a night with an ass yeah um <laughs> sorry I'm speaking maybe I'm tired um yeah <laughs> Brandon's cry face that one time really just like <laughs> I don't know. Was Shakespeare saying that gender is fluid, guys? No. No. He <laughs> <laughs> had no in, nothing invested in that fight except just <laughs> no. Why did he choose to have as a guy that was a Christian? as far as we know, or at least writing in a very Christian culture, what's with the depiction of the fairies as being sort of beyond, either beyond or beneath or different than regular morality? Why don't Titania and Oberon exist in any kind of marriage as we understand it? Why are they supposed, is there something pagan about that? Or what's, what, what are we dealing with here? I don't know. My guess is it's just a, it's pagan. Fairies going to be fairies. Fairies going to be fairies. Greek gods going to be Greek gods set in Greece. So... That was an interesting, did this feel like it was set in Greece to you guys at no. all? It felt completely like a London play. It felt like especially the Bottom English and his friends, countryside, in yeah. English countryside, and the, the fairies feel very. Everything about English. this play feels English. I think Chesterton makes that point in his point in that essay too. That's part of the brilliance of it. <laughs> Is that it feels English? The uh, Chesterton essay is interesting because he's obviously mad at George Bernard Shaw for trying to cast Shakespeare as the supreme rationalist or something like that. So whatever it is that Chesterton's doing, and I'm not quite sure what he's doing. It's a weird essay, <laughs> but he's obviously it's certainly aimed at George Bernard it Shaw. It is squarely aimed at George Bernard Shaw, as a lot of his essays were. You think lot- Shakespeare is a rationalist? I present to you a Midsummer Night's Dream. Right. Make sense of this, baby. <laughs> and guess what? It's his best play, George. <laughs> it's just kind of like, uh, well, Shakespeare does, when it comes to rationalists, a lot of his rationalists have pretty bad ends. So Hamlet tries to be a rationalist. Right. And it doesn't go so well for him. We didn't talk any about catharsis, but... <laughs> Let's talk about catharsis. <laughs> catharsis is just the theory that through the emotions that the play elicits, it's supposed to purge your emotions. <laughs> Sorry. I know with my can eyes you see, closed. Like the, can you see how Brandon looks to me? He's, he's no, just, I only see his left eye. It just looks like he's like uh, winking at me the whole time. <laughs> 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 like we're in on a joke together. Right. Yeah, I don't know what's in my eye. It must be some allergy. Jake thinks the play's about catharsis. <laughs> <laughs> She can just see this. Joke. <laughs> I should just get a patch for my eye. <laughs> you should just get a patch. Well, I don't even know where I was going with that now. <laughs> well, uh, 
Well, I, I hear yeah. it's a large, a large part of it's about the effect as opposed to the actual, like it's supposed to tell you something. Right. And so it's like music. It, it's not necessarily aiming at teaching you some moral lesson it as it is, as it is about producing the pleasure of a good story. So how the pleasure of a story well told and all the pieces fit together. And it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's not trying to teach you some ultimate thing about reality. It throws that all at the end because it's a fun little tidbit and it's like snuffing out the, <laughs> blowing out the candle there at the end like oh what is so you've walked this watched you've watched this play within a play it the themes have been dreams and troubling boundaries and all these weird things and it's been a strange journey and now just as one little last twist puck's gonna walk out like he does in a lot of plays i mean you have rumor start out one of the histories right i think it might be the henry's he's covered in tongues have you never seen this <laughs> rumor? So. He walks out onto the stage and he addresses the audience. So this is just something that happens in the play. Sometimes one of the characters will actually come out and will address you very, will just oh, yeah, break yeah, yeah, the sure, fourth yeah, wall course, and address yeah. the audience. And so it's just, it's something that the audience would have found fun. And that would have been a signal to them that the play is about to end. And here's one little last, you know, nudge at your side that Shakespeare is giving you. So in other words, I think it's about the effect of the play. It's mm-hmm. about the pageantry. It's about the fun that you're, that, of the story. I don't know if there's a lesson we're trying to drive home here. No, I don't think that there is. Is there? No, which means that it is a difficult play to talk about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the nature of... Okay, so the point of the play is that it's a fun play, right? Yeah. I mean, then maybe that's a dumb way to put it, but the point of the play is it's a good evening at the theater and there's funny stuff and cool mystical fairies doing crazy things and young love and it all escalates into madness and Puck is funny and Nick Bottom is funny. It's um, super self-referential. It's super self-referential. Even, I was just thinking, all, all the women would have been played by men originally, right? Yeah. And so even the fact of the joke about the dude who has to play the chick in the play within the play would have been a commentary on the two men running around as Hermea and Helena, yeah. you know, pretending to be. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, so I, I like to think about the humor that we don't get. I always feel like there are things that are sailing over our, our heads that they would have gotten that we wouldn't have gotten. And that's one of the one of them that just occurred to me. But yeah, it's a su- super self-referential where were we going with that idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just asking, okay, so it's the play this is a fun the point of this play is to enjoy a play. How does it achieve that effect? What effect does it achieve and what are the mechanics that, you know, if someone is approaching this play for the first time as some of our listeners may be doing, what should they be looking to get out of it? They're not going to get a great lesson about the human spirit or anything like that. Um I think they should probably come to it having watched a bunch of other plays. It shouldn't be their first Shakespeare. It shouldn't be their first Shakespeare because so much of, if it's, if it's really a self-referential, like I'm Shakespeare and I'm going to go super meta and I'm going to make fun of Romeo and Juliet and I'm going to make fun of the playgoing experience and I'm going to make fun of all the stupid little things that we have to do, like have men play women and whatever, then you should have some sense of what the expectations for uh, what normal expectations for a play are so that you can be in on as much of the joke as you can. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think totally. Yeah. I think that's a good first step. Go and read a whole lot of other Shakespeare plays. Right. <laughs> it really helps to have seen Romeo and Juliet or some one of those. The more we read these, the, the, the more I just think people shouldn't read them. 
Just yeah, watch them. they should be watched. Well, the problem with this one is that we don't have a good version to recommend That's right. because they all have uh, 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 the female form in various stages of undress, but um, mm-hmm. or and or the male form, whatever. The male as well. Yeah, they. Yeah. Um, I wish you guys had watched this version because I'm tempted to recommend it, but I, I, I'm not. I'm not comfortable doing it without a second because it's it's edgy, but it's not that edgy. Maybe I don't know. Anyway. Too bad. Um, so sad. So sad. <laughs> yeah, so they should read or watch a whole bunch of Shakespeare plays and then just uh, watch the way that he unfolds the story. Yeah. It's, the mechanics are fun to watch. So that's like when people talk about this play, usually you know, you'll talk about, well, today they're going to talk about the androgyny of the some of the characters. They're also, apparently the person who owned this book before me, they were really into all the times they talked about skin color. <laughs> So you had the uh, words fair and white and tawny. And out beside tawny, they have dark skinned. (laughs) I was like, okay, so I know what this person was all about. So I I will say one thing very quickly about, I don't want to turn this podcast into a whole thing about the gender fluidity. Who cares? That's dumb. I I will say the only thing, the only reason that the uh, androgyny in a play like this is funny is because you're bringing... Actual sexual expectations. Actual sexual expectation. Just like the only reason that Homer Simpson is funny is because everyone understands innately that fathers are supposed to be good and respected and dignified, and therefore Homer Simpson's funny because he's not. The this kind of androgyny appearing uh, comedy. I think I think comedy and uh, horror. Those two genres are both innately transgressive and they're also both generally innately conservative because in order to be transgressive you got to have something to transgress and so you i just i, I want to quickly and summarily dismiss any claims of this play being a great uh, advocacy piece for no it's androgyny yeah. or for because the whole point is that it's funny and interesting to watch because it's transgressing what normally should be happening and then what normally should be happening gets restored by the end of the play and that's a happy ending and then he's and he's got uh neutral devices that he can use in these mystical beings to do it so he doesn't even have to have normal people be the transgressive ones right they're just caught up in this machinery that tosses them around a bit and it's funny to watch. They become the playthings of the gods. But because we know it's not a Woody Allen movie, they're actually going to be, they're going to come out okay in the end, and there is going to be the wedding, and everything's going to be fine, and it's going to reassert, like you said, this, um, the beauty of marriage and the wonder and weirdness of a man and a woman being together. And everybody would have seen it, and Shakespeare liked Anne Hathaway and gave her his marriage bed when he died. Right. <laughs> because he was the kind of guy that could write these sorts of things. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. so that's the end of any, we don't want to hear about it, people that think this play is some kind of weird gay rights play. I don't know what people say, but whatever they say, it's dumb. So what were we talking about? I just wanted to stab that one in the heart and then we could be done with it. But um, we were talking about the mechanics. The mechanics. And so, I mean, there are a lot of things that, so when people talk about this play, you're going to talk about those sorts of things. You're going to talk about how he plays with imagination and the dream within the dream and the layers that he adds to that. Then you're also going to look at how it relates to other plays and kind of borrows from them. So you have... This is not based on anything, by the way, right? No, it's not. Just the names. I mean, Theseus. The- Theseus was really conquered the Amazons and married yeah. Hippolyta and Plutarch, I think, right? Yeah, so that's really the only thing that has 
any basis in something else. And this is just then saying, okay, well, he's about to marry Hippolyta. What might have happened right, right before his wedding? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, somebody might have come to him with an issue about his daughter. Right. And then you go from there. Mm. And they run away, the four kids, and then they get into all sorts of crazy trouble. <laughs> they sure do. All's well that ends well. Right. Yeah, all's well that ends well. And then he just makes it, you know, he keeps adding... You know what a, a fugue is? It takes a musical theme and then keeps adding different variations on that theme on top of the theme. And sometimes you'll have the theme playing it three times at once. Mm-hmm. And it gets really complicated and then it has a resolution. And it's kind of going on here. You have all these different themes. You have Titania and you have Oberon and Titania. You have the four Utes. 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 Kind of Theseus and Hippolyta, but really they're never up for grabs. They always are in movies. There's They always... And they're not up for grabs, but I have not. I have yet to watch a version where Hippolyta doesn't sort of somehow with her face or something show that she's in a huff when uh, Theseus doesn't just grant Hermia's request at the beginning. And I think in that Kevin Klein version, they really they do even they're, more. They push yeah, it they're really, really that. playing like this whole. I guess they just kind of. On the try. one hand, it seems like she really likes him and is in love with him. On the other hand, maybe she hates him. Right. He has to go off and talk to her, and when they have this like side conversation, that's not actually in the play. I don't think. No, it's not. That's strange because I mean, then, they, then he comes back and announces that he's overriding everything, and they're getting married with him that in the afternoon or whatever. Because in the actual Shakespeare play, I mean, it starts out fairly happily. They're talking about their wedding night, and even she says, "You know, we just have four days to go." It feels to me, it doesn't feel to me like he's supposed to be any character like that. It feels to me like he's just supposed to be the guy that's in every Shakespeare play who's just like Mr. Authority figure shows up at the end and makes some judgment, and the bad guy is gonna get taken away, and he's gonna make some pronounce. It's like almost every Shakespeare play has this guy. It's like a duke or a king or a somebody who yeah, he's he's the bookends because we can trust him, and he's solid and. He's there, and we don't have to worry about the world falling apart for him. If, if it was going to build a story off of him, it would become a tragedy. Right, absolutely. Because he's the classic tragic. He has the status of a tragic hero. And so it quickly pans away from him to the world of comedy. These young people, the bumbling dad who doesn't want to give his daughter away, wants to kill her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good solution, dad. <laughs> so, and in the world of fairies, and it gets into the world of make you know, make believe. <laughs> <laughs> the trolley Mr. takes them to the. Yeah, Mr. Rogers <laughs> shows up. He's got puppets. <laughs> Some Indian ones. spices. Did you think? Did you guys think that we were supposed to feel any? Because, like I said, I saw the two different versions that kind of handled this differently, and um, I know which one kind of played better for me. I, th- I think I already said, but did you guys think we were supposed to actually take the plight of the four young lovers seriously? at all or was it all tongue-in-cheek i think you probably were meant to feel the tension right of oh no this is all messed up and needs to be resolved and that pressure on puck to from oberon to fix the thing that he screwed up right. i think you were supposed part to of feel the yeah. comedic tension you were supposed to feel sympathy for hermia and lysander you yeah. were supposed to feel like demetrius needed kind of his comeuppance because he's kind of a and you were supposed to be sympathetic with Helena. That's what I thought too. But then by the time you get to is it yeah, I guess it's act 4 where they've they've everything's been screwed around on them and they're all mad at each other. The women are both being total shrews and the men are both being hotheads and they're all kind of just interchangeably ridiculous 
at that. And it's not really their fault. I guess the gods have been bewitching them. But at a certain point, it does just turn into farce. Like It gets all chaotic and messy, but it doesn't change the fact that they are the set characters at the beginning. So I like the idea. I want to see the version where it's a more tongue-in-cheek all Equally the way through. distributed f- young foolishness. Yeah, I want to yeah. see that. I don't know whether that was inherent to Shakespeare, but it, 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 it made for a funnier version, and it made you feel a lot better about all those characters getting their cubumpets. They all sort of were selfish brats that deserved to be, they didn't deserve to be unhappy or severely punished, but one night of the gods joking around with them felt fair. That's not the way that I read it, Mm-hmm. But it certainly sounds like a very clever way of reading it. Yeah, I, I want to see it interpreted that way. I, I think that would be really interesting. And I, I like the idea of that being maybe the way that Shakespeare intended it. And I, it, I just missed it. You know what I mean? Yeah. All I can say is that's not the way that I read it. And it's not the way that the Kevin Klein version interpreted it. They were it. more sympathetic with Lysander. And- they Lysander were and he- totally unsympathetic with Helena. She was just like... I thought they botched Helena. In I thought version, so, though. too. Calista Flockhart just, like, obviously didn't know how to do Shakespeare, and the director didn't have the nerve to tell his star how to do Shakespeare. It was... There's just, nothing sympathetic about... Uh, which that's strange, because if you have one character, you'll be... should be sympathetic towards, because well, yeah, she, right. she, she goes through all sorts of... sympathetic character, I she thought. Was, the two guys end up making her feel like they're just making fun oh, of yeah, her. Oh, that's dev- yeah, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. That's like... You really feel her pain when everyone's when she she's the one that you can most believe would feel hurt by the fact that why is everybody? And you're right. I mean, even me? but in that interpretation, it's just like she's just she's loud and she's clingy. obnoxious, and then it's of. just another occasion for her to be loud and obnoxious. Like you know, so um, Hermia at the beginning, Theseus is trying to tell her, well, you need to listen to your father. That's mm-hmm. basically his continual his, his point that he keeps making. Well, you need to listen to your dad. And she says, well, I just wish he could see with my eyes. And I was like, well, you kind of just need to see with his eyes. And if Theseus really is this voice of reason, mm-hmm. then she is foolish at the beginning because then she just runs away with Lysander. Well, yeah. And then he gives so she's going to give up. She's going to die or she's going to go be a nun. Yeah. And the obvious, I mean, she's not in Antigone. She's not making this for some noble choice. Right. So, no, it's youthful passion. Yeah. And so he says here, I mean, they say this, these, oh, cross, too high to be enthralled to low. And then she keeps saying, oh, spite, oh, hell. Right. So they get some pretty funny lines where obviously he's poking yeah. fun at their just ridiculousness. That's kind of stuff. Like the the Kevin Klein version played a lot of that, less so as it went on, but it played a lot of that stuff straight. And it just made a lot more sense when, like in the version, the other version that I watched, that whole opening thing after um, Theseus yeah, leaves Amanda them. laughed every time it was oh spite oh hell right she thought that was pretty funny and the <laughs> that part was funny but <laughs> uh, but what I'm agreeing with whatever version you're talking about right I think that Shakespeare was kind of tongue in cheek here especially with Hermia yeah. and yeah um, Lysander well and the two dudes and I think you're not supposed to like Demetrius at first at all he's just kind of he's a, just an interloper well he's supposed he, to like him ever I'm not sure I ever did. Well, no. I mean, at the it's end, not you're any sort to be okay of okay with him. The resolution that happens, but it's not character be happy growth. that it's, Helena gets what she wants. Yeah. To be. Right, it's, and it's not because I've, I've in both all the versions I've 
read and in the, watching it didn't really feel any sympathy for the dudes. Maybe it's just because I don't usually feel sympathy for hot guys that are quarreling over hot girls. But the dudes to me felt fairly interchangeably like bland young lovers. Hermia and Helena, I could tell they had distinctly interesting characters and points of view, at least insofar as the farce of the story would allow them. But So that gives you, that puts you in the in the perspective of Theseus, who's looking at Hermia and is saying, you know, I, I'm not sure between the two of these guys that one of them is really worth, you know, dying or being a nun over and giving up a happy life with a family. A lot of people have said, uh, I mean, obviously it's easy to be unhappy with Theseus for upholding Athenian, brutal Athenian law there. But at least one thing I read said that what we're actually seeing is an act of mercy because he's giving her the nun option too, which wouldn't be expected. So it's kind of like he's pulling, just, just go with the guy. It's not that bad, but also don't get yourself killed over this. You can, if you gotta be an idiot, you can do the nun thing. So it really is, he really is this character, like Brandon was saying, just the, the voice of reason and of whatever. You they're, know. Who, they're who Titania and Oberon should be if they right. weren't pagan. Weirdos. Yeah. Freaker people. Swingers. Swingers. Yeah. <laughs> Pagan swingers. <laughs> oh, yeah. One thing we haven't talked about is that what he's also having fun with is, you know, he wrote his sonnets and they have this theme of love and the courtly love and the language of love at the time. Mm-hmm. And that, oh, hell, oh, spite, that's kind of getting along those lines and just kind of making fun of that whole idea of the passionate um, expression of love in the first place because... Mm-hmm. Everybody is making passionate expressions of love to everyone else just un- as soon as they're put under a spell. Right. And so he's... And then in the end... The more we talk all, about... I'm sorry. Once this, once the spell's taken away, then you know, the resolution is just marriage. Right. And the more we talk about this being really tongue-in-cheek, the more that I love it. I think there's a good argument to be just, made that the whole thing's tongue-in-cheek, especially because the whole... Th- fifth act is a sarcastic version of the same lover's plight kind of a right. story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm convinced. And I just think it just it's just a lot of, it's just so much more fun. To, I don't know what Shakespeare was going for, but it's, it's really Everything fun. Everything that I've seen that looks way. like they play it straight, you know, the love angle, but I really like the idea of it. I just think that that's the right way to, to do it, and I love the idea of it. I don't know. Well, the evidence is there. Theseus, you know why Hippolyta's there, because he conquered her. <laughs> right. He <laughs> yeah. brought her back. Right. <laughs> but she's going to marry him, and they seem perfectly fine. Right. Don't seem, she doesn't seem upset at it. <laughs> so and then you have these four, four bland, interchangeable, and if you want selfish t- lovers. Yeah, and if you want to, I mean, so Shakespeare's making us men want to conquer the woman, right? <laughs> and once she's conquered, marry her. <laughs> we'll just say marry her. And um, these guys are making a big deal about it and they're getting all in their exuberant expressions about it. Mm-hmm. And so then everybody starts falling in love with everybody else and the passion is all there and it all gets messed up. And it's just, you know, Shakespeare's just, he's having a lot of fun with it. And then in the end, when things are resolved, it's not because they all have killed themselves like Romeo and Juliet or Pyramus and or have written sonnets to one another. Right. It's because there's a wedding. And then there's the marriage life after the wedding. And that's where the happiness is. It's not the silly, exuberant expressions of love and stuff. I mean, you can end up falling in love with a man with an ass's head. Right. (laughs) If you get carried away. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it actually does, as much as we said, this isn't the play with any intentional deep insights into human nature. When we get into all this gender fluidity, it turns out that women behave in a pretty predictably clingy woman, womany kind of a 
biznichi way, whatever the booking appropriate word of that is, and men become aggressive blowhards. No, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, once again, not a good play to go to for your... Your queer theory paper, Mr. Actually, probably a great play because your professor's dumb and will give you an A, but you're wrong, grad student listening to the bookening who doesn't agree with it. Yeah, you're dumb. <laughs> Which, uh, to go back to that story you were telling at the beginning of this being at someone's wedding, why people like that story is because it does reinforce what this is about. The happiness is when it, finally at the end, the fire is dying down. They've just had the play. Everybody's happy. And then Theseus and Hippolyta are talking. I was like, well, they're all going off to, you know, consummate now. And it's things are good. Right. <laughs> and so it's just the nice thought that then, you know, probably the friends around having just watched would be joking with the young husband and wife after seeing the play. And they would all be like ribbing them and then <laughs> off they go. <laughs> right. <laughs> And that's the that's where the happiness is is in the marriage and in the life after it and in the fruit of that even that right. night was the children and they're all going to have beautiful children yeah. thanks to our fairy friends and uh, then like Shakespeare you can one day leave your bed to your wife and die at your daughter's wedding because you had a great time with your best friend <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope we get to heaven and we're like, Shakespeare, was it true? And he's like, yeah, it's true. We had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. I wouldn't change a thing. (laughs) Should Christians read stories about fairies? No. The Booking Today was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Brandon Chasteen and Jake Menzel. Go on to your favorite podcast downloadable thing, perhaps the thing that you're using to listen to this podcast, and you can download our other fantastic podcast, arguably second only to The Booking, World We Made. The World We Made, I believe, it's a, is the official title. It's an eight-season arc all about homosexuality. Got me and Jake. Doesn't have Brandon. Sorry, Brandon. It's okay. You said eight season arc, but I think you meant eight, eight episodes. Oh, yes, an eight season arc would be a long <laughs> arc. <laughs> it's basically like Lost. <laughs> the first season's going to be really good, but there's, there's, a, all there's a smoke monster. There's a smoke monster, yeah. <laughs> the smoke monster that I call the gay Christian movement. Anyway, World We Made, great podcast. Listen to it. Thank you for listening. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>